Hi Dan. Hi Katie. Welcome to Have You Ever Heard Of, a history podcast. Where we talk about people from history you may or may not have heard of. How are you and how was the Tank Museum? The tank Museum was unbelievable. It was fantastic. <laughs> it was fucking Full amazing. Um, yeah, I was running around like a little child. I mean, like, we haven't gone out. We haven't been allowed to go out for like months. So like... Yeah. I was finally allowed out of the house, surrounded <laughs> by people, and I was just like running around like a four-year-old, just pointing at the different tanks, just spewing off like little facts about all of them. To... I bet Charlotte really enjoyed that. Yeah, so Charlotte, you had no interest whatsoever. <laughs> <laughs> this is like me when I go to any kind of museum or hi- historical houses, more actually more, Yeah. because I like to pretend like I'm in them, so I try and get into the character of like... The century person, I walk around like the big skirt, like flowing, <laughs> flowing in a big hat, being like, "Yes, this is my drawing room. This is my morning room where I spend the morning." <laughs> nice. Yeah. Um, I watched Hamilton. Ah. Have you seen it yet? No, I refuse to watch it <laughs> because I just don't understand. Like, it was like, "Oh, this is an amazing, like, progressive thing." But it kind of isn't, because what it does is whitewash the past and essentially just kind of like cover up the crimes of the founding fathers, which I'm not down with. But you know the whole cast, it's either black or Hispanic, right? I know, but it's still, I mean, like, <laughs> but by doing well, that... like, underrepresented, yeah. Yeah, but by doing that, it doesn't change the fact that, like, all those founding fathers have slaves. No, it doesn't, but they also do address, like, certain things. Not that the slavery really, I mean, they kind of do in a way... Because Eliza Hamilton, and Hamilton as well, was like, an, you know, an abolitionist. Yeah. And I think the problem is that Hamilton's story never gets told. Yeah. Whereas all the other founding fathers do, and because he died young, and he was never president, and, you know, all this stuff, his story never gets told. And yeah. that's why then manuel wrote, like, Hamilton. Yeah, I can see that, but, like, I'd, yeah... This it felt like there was kind of like a little, kind of like feeling that where like people thought it was like cool to just like I don't know just like watch certain things. Like I don't know if it ever got made, but Michelle was telling me about um uh, like a London-based playwright or something who's going to do a similar thing, but like about the suffragettes. And then someone else raised like the fact that like it was yeah. There was like a certain amount of like kind of racism to like the suffragette movement, which means that like you just kind of like you whitewash that aspect out by by uh, by doing it in that way, which I don't think is a, is particularly helpful. History is like complex, and people should see history as complex rather than creating like these really like simplistic narratives. To uh, it's true, it is really complex. To, se- but I also to sell do, them, basically, I do like the fact that. That the history is being told in different formats. Yeah. Sorry, there's an ice cream van outside my window, so I really <laughs> apologise if everyone's hearing that. And that people are more engaged with history because of these things, like the popularity of Hamilton. Who had heard of him before, you know, this? Not not uh, the people that have heard of him now. And and Eliza Hamilton, who was the wife of Hamilton, who often, also, uh, often gets written out of the narrative, as women do... Mm-hmm. It's now written back into the narrative, and she was a really important person. So that's cool. Also, I understand your meaning, but you know, you could move on from that. And if you're really interested in the history, you could read more about Hamilton and more about the founding fathers, especially George Washington and his treatment of slaves, which mm. was not good. Not good. 
Yeah, his uh, dream of slaves are as bad as his wooden teeth. They don't really talk about um, like slavery that much in Hamilton. Yeah. It's it's based around you know the independence and um, like fighting for independence, and then obviously around Hamilton and his like personal life. Yeah. So if they had talked about it and then sugarcoated it, that would be different. But but they don't really talk about it that much. But all talk, like all kind of the conversation around the uh, Revolutionary War is kind of like sugarcoating it. Like um, Gerald Ford's written a really interesting book. Um, called the uh, count, it's like the Counter Revolution, seventeen oh six, which basically looks at how, like, in many ways, the American Revolution was a Counter Revolution, which sought to uh, to maintain slavery. Which is interesting, an interesting take. It is, um, but anyway, I liked it a lot. <laughs> I'm a musical musical geek, so I liked it a lot. Um, and I went to the cinema. Cool for the first time. Yes. How was it? On my own, like an absolute weirdo, just sitting there, like, <sighs> looking at the screen, like, it's so big. It's definitely no... It's great. <laughs> no shame in going to the cinema on your own. No, I like it. It's it great. great. I loved it. <laughs> like, it's like, in the dark on my own, like, <laughs> getting some actual, like, alone time. <laughs> yeah. It was really good. I saw some St. Francis, which is a really sweet film about a 30-year-old who whose friends are all having kids and she doesn't really want them. And I was like, hey, mm. I know a girl like that. it's really sweet and fun um yeah well what have you been doing apart from going to the tank museum uh spent the weekend in salisbury so we went walking um down by the coast and then uh through like in the new forest so saw like all the like horses and the cattle on the common land which was cool nice seeing them just kind of like free to wander about it's cool driving around there, actually. Just horses just in the middle of the road being like, oh, this is where we live now. And you're like, oh, <laughs> fair play to you guys. This is your land. Um, <laughs> this is my land. <laughs> this is not your land. Go away, London. Well, not London boy, but kind of London. <laughs> and we checked boy. out Old Sarum, uh, which is just like just outside of Salisbury. Was it in Salisbury? I don't know. We had to walk for a while to get there. But it's like, a, like an old fort that like dates back to the Neolithic period. And it's like on this hill with like two kind of like moats around it. And it's just like the best defensive position I've ever seen in my life. So I totally get why they were there for <laughs> centuries. Wow, this defense is amazing. <laughs> These are the sort of things I think when I see them. And then I'm like, if there was a zombie outbreak, we could come up here and it would be quite good. But then I was mm-hmm. like, everyone saw us, we would have this idea and we'd go up here and there'd be zombies everywhere. Would they though, Dan? <laughs> Also, you'd have to get to Salisbury. That's true, yeah, and that's going to be pretty difficult. It would like, probably be easier it, to stay in your flat. It'd be over for us in, like, seconds. I think, actually, the best place to go would be the library I work at's, like, secure vault. Nice. Yeah, yeah where they keep all the old documents. And the plans, where they keep all the plans. <laughs> all the plans. Just a giant plan box. The it's non-descript like, plans. Big as a bed. Um, that, would, that would probably be pretty secure. It'd be really cold, and 
really boring. Well, I guess you could read all the old historical documents about the gold. Yeah, about the library and the plants. You (laughs) actually be able to find out where in what's in there. Maybe it's plans for a zombie apocalypse. Yeah, ancient plans for a zombie apocalypse. I think I just solved it. But you know, those plans never go out of date. No, they don't. Always relevant. Shall we talk about history? Yes. Okay. So, have you ever heard of Puyi, the last emperor of China? Like, I know who he is. Yeah. But I couldn't tell you anything about him. Like, all I know is what you just said. He's the last <laughs> emperor of China. And that is it. That, that's my, the full extent of my knowledge. There was a, uh Oscar winning, I think it won Oscars, a film about him, but I've never seen it. So, oh, do you know what's called? Uh, the Last Emperor. Oh, okay. It's got a very inventive cool. title. I mean, at least it gets straight to Emperor. the point. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, it sums it all up quite nicely. The Last Emperor. So, okay. Obviously, I'm going to have to just carry on. I've started doing disclaimers on like sources, so I'm going to carry on doing that. So, the film is based on a book by journalist Edward Beer. Bear. Okay. Bear. And uh, Bear. so, basically, that's kind of like where most of our knowledge of his like life comes from, like from from his like. Uh, interviews like with various people from Puyi's life and Puyi himself however he is a journalist and he much of it what he wrote is kind of like sensationalist and uneven and not entirely objective so yeah he, he's not a historian and we should uh probably recognize that fact before we get uh, to it are there historical books about him uh yes i think so but um but not as popular yeah yeah fair um, enough Cool. Right. With that said, uh, let's start. So, he was born on the 7th of February 1906 in the Prince Chung Mansions in Beijing. Um, so, he was chosen to be emperor by Empress Dowager Cixi at the age of two years and ten months. Wait, he was chosen to be emperor? Like, he was just like, you, you're going to be emperor. It wasn't like he was born into it. No, so, like, at this point, like, the Qing, like, I don't know, I... I, I I need to kind of like read a bit more around this because it, it it really like it was in this kind of like weird place where like the former emperor had like attempted to like reform China and then the Empress Dowager who I think was like his mother or like one of yeah, his yeah that's mothers. what Dowager means but I mean, like the mother it's one of his mothers because like basically oh. <laughs> all of like the concubines of the former emperor would be his mother so uh, like there's okay. a whole like host of mothers of course so one of his mothers was like kind of like a bit of a tyrant and essentially managed to get him like the former emperor like locked up for like years so when he died instead of like the actual heir taking over she chose a different heir that she could control who was like this 10 like two year old child right fair enough i see how th- see where this is going yeah so, on the evening of the 13th of November, 1908, without any advance notice, a procession of eunuchs and guardsmen led uh, led by the palace chamberlain left the Forbidden City for the Northern Mansion to inform Prince Chun that they were taking away his two-year-old son, Pu Yi, to be the new emperor. So they just turned up and just stole him. Like, um, how's your, is your two-year-old, like, is he, like, napping or anything at the moment? Oh, no, he's just here. Okay, we're going to have him. We're just going to have him. So, like... He's new emperor. Unsurprisingly, little Puyi screamed and resisted, but his parents did nothing, of course. I mean, like, they're going to kind of get something out of this, and they're just like, sweet, take him, take him. Take him away. (laughs) Puyi later described this uh, situation. Um, He said, I still have a dim recollection of this meeting, the shock of which left a deep impression on my memory. I remember suddenly finding myself surrounded by strangers, while before me was hung a drab of curtains through which I could see an amate emaciated and terrifying hideous face this was Cece 
I, I'm no. calling BS. There's no way he remembers that he's two years old. <laughs> yeah, come I know. on, nobody remembers to, like two years old. This is all to like make a good story for the journalist, but yeah. still, but still, it, I'm sure she was terrifying. It is said that I burst into tears. Uh, loud howls at the sides and started to tremble uncontrollably. Cece told someone to give me some sweets, but I threw them on the floor, yelling, "I want nanny! I want nanny!" To her great displeasure. What a naughty child, she said. Take him away to play. <laughs> um, so Puya's coronation was held in the Hall of Supreme Harmony on the 2nd of December 1908. He was carried onto the dragon's throne by his father. Puya was frightened at the scene before him and the deafening sounds of ceremonial drums and music and started crying. His father could do nothing except quietly comfort him and say, don't cry, it'll, it'll be over soon, over and over again. So... Following this, Puyi wouldn't see his biological mother for seven years. What? Yeah, pretty grim. Wow. Instead, so he'll be nine when yeah. he like, sees her again. Instead, he develops a mother-son relationship with his wet nurse, Wang Wen Chow, uh, who he credits as one of the only people who could actually control him. Um, so yeah, I mean, that's pretty harsh, right? We should all start feeling pretty sorry for him. The, uh, uh, maybe the, I don't know. Crazy... Your face is telling me something else. <laughs> <laughs> and, the, and the crazy childhood he had, because he became emperor so young, he couldn't remember a time when he wasn't indulged and revered as some kind of demigod. Wherever he went, grown men would kneel down in ritual kowtow averting their eyes until he passed. So, unsurprisingly, this kind of affected his behaviour. So his main keepers were the eunuchs. They advised him, kept him, dressed him, cleaned him, fed him, and taught him. Um, so Puyi quickly uh, learned that he also wielded absolute power over them. And so he frequently had them beaten for minor transgressions, or even just for fun. <laughs> so once Puyi decided to reward, in inverted commas, a eunuch for a well-done puppet show by having a cake baked for him with iron filings in it, saying, Oh I my wa- god. I know. I want to see what he looks like when he eats it. That was it. Oh just my god. See. That's it's- like... Proper psychopath. Yeah, Yeah, proper psychopath. (laughs) Like, that's... that's, Who nobody thinks of that. No. No, Like, literally nobody thinks of that. They're not like, you know what I'm going to (laughs) do? Cake. But yeah, with Iron Like, It's just too twisted. Yeah. So... Okay, then. (laughs) It was only with much difficulty that his wet nurse, Wang, talks him out of the plan. So he kind of just delighted in humiliating his eunuchs in general. At one point, uh, he said to one of them, uh, as the Lord of 10,000 years, uh, it's my right to order a eunuch to eat dirt, so eat that for me. Uh, and the eunuch knelt down and ate it. Nice. Uh, he also liked to shoot the help with his air gun. Um, as Edward Bear wrote, the emperor was divine. He could not be remonstrated with or punished. He could only be deferentially advised against in- ill-treating innocent eunuchs. And if he chose to fire air gun pellets at them, that was his prerogative. Wow. <laughs> Booyer later said, Flogging eunuchs was part of my daily routine. My cruelty and love of wielding power were already too firmly set for persuasion to have any effect on me. So, yeah. Pretty I mean, crazy. yeah, he's clearly messed up. But, yeah. I mean, this isn't his fault that it's messed up, but he's still messed up. Yeah. Just, yeah. A bit just too don't make someone an emperor two years <laughs> yeah. old. Like, it's just, it's not going to work out okay. Well, clearly it's not going to work out okay. So by age seven, Puyi had two sides of his personality. The sadistic emperor who loved to have his eunuchs flogged, uh, expected everyone to kowtow to him and enjoyed 
And one that enjoyed puppet shows um, and slept at night with Wang suckling her breast and content to be loved for just once in the day. So he was still breastfed at like seven years old. Yeah, that's that's really old to be breastfed. Like, so I mean, like, like, like two a... is kind of old to be breastfed. Yeah, I know, yeah. I mean, like, he's a little psycho. Um, basically, he's kind of like at first I was like he's kind of like a real life like Joffrey or like Ramsay Bolton. But, like, he was getting, like, breastfed at seven. So he's more like the Moondor kid in, like, Game of Thrones. That's not oh, a cool yeah, character to that, be. yeah, that was weird. Yeah. yeah. So that's who no. he is. Just that one. <laughs> that sucks. But, like, with a Joffrey-esque <laughs> yeah. kind of meanness. So, uh, every day Pooey had to visit a five former Imperial concubines called his mother's uh, to report his progress. So by this time, Cece was dead and the new leader was there. Equally autocratic Emperor Dowager Long Yu. Uh, apparently, he hated his mothers. They prevented him from seeing his real mother until he was 13. Uh, Empress Dowager Long Yu all successfully conspired to have Huyi's beloved wet nurse Wang expelled from the Forbidden City when he was eight on the grounds that Puyi was too old to be breastfed. Which I mean, is I mean, kind he of was. fair. I mean, yeah. I... But she could have stayed on as like his nurse exactly something. yeah just kind of like just stopped i mean there. i don't know i wasn't there <laughs> making like massive speculations but... i guess like it's quite impossible to stop him from breastfeeding like he is the emperor so you just be like i don't think you should probably breastfeed anymore and I don't, like, i'm not sure you i'm should, just gonna breastfeed well anymore. i think i should breastfeed and they'll be like all right wet nurse well, is happened. a bit of a weird job as well it is a very strange job it's like did we talk about this before i can't remember but apparently like so obviously you produce milk when you're pregnant. Yeah. But also people just pro- some women just produce milk, and that's like really? usually people that were wet nurses. Yeah. Someone told me this recently. Oh wow! I think I it's true. That. I'm gonna go with it because they're also a historian. So. Because I always I believe thought, them. I always thought like it was just yeah they they have a kid and then they just continue like continue to be milked so like I don't. Know. Yeah. Obviously, if you continue to milk. <laughs> Like, the yeah. more you continue to milk, the more you produce it. Yeah. But I think there are some women who, like, naturally produce it or something. I don't wow. Know. Yeah. Shit. So maybe she's one of them. Yeah. Good old Wang. <laughs> do you know, do we know what happened to her or she was just banished? Uh, She kind of, like, she's banished for a while, but then, like, she's brought back into the kingdom when he becomes, like, an adult. And they have, like, kind of a like, uh, fairly close relationship. But, like, yeah. No more, like, breastfeeding, though. That's okay. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so yeah, P- uh, Puyi later wrote, "Although I had many mothers, I never knew any motherly love." Which I think is a bit harsh, since he did have Wang. Like, I yeah. think he's just trying—he's just laying it on a bit thick, there, isn't he? Yeah. <laughs> so, whenever he like moved about, he'd be accompanied by a huge procession. Like that included just when simply moving from one building to like another within the Forbidden City. Or even just for like a little stroll in the garden. As oh, yeah. he described sure. it. <laughs> in front went a eunuch whose function was roughly that of a motor horn. He walked 20 or 30 yards ahead of the party, intoning the sound, cheer, cheer, as a warning to anyone who might be in the vicinity to go away at once. Next came the two chief eunuchs, advancing cabwise on either side of the path. Ten paces behind them came the centre of the procession. If I was being carried in a chair, there would be two junior eunuchs walking beside me to attend my wants at any moment. If I was walking, they would be supporting me. 
Just holding him up. What? Just he's just <laughs> so important that he couldn't hold himself up. Next came a eunuch with a large silk canopy, followed by a large group of eunuchs, some empty-handed, others holding all sorts of things, a seat in case I wanted to rest, changes of clothing, umbrellas what? and parasols. Just, yeah, he might want to get changed while having a wander in the garden. <laughs> might want to change his, his look halfway through his day. I uh, often change my pants, you know, halfway yeah, through the day if it's a bit like, warm. Yeah, just to the, I, when, I'm, yeah, when I'm in the centre, just like whip them off. Get some fresh ones on. Maybe a bit sweaty that day. Yeah, it's perfectly uh, <laughs> normal. I don't know what you, don't know what's the problem. After these eunuchs of the imperial presence came eunuchs of the imperial tea bureau with boxes of various kinds of cakes and delicacies. They were followed by eunuchs of the imperial dispensary. At the end of the procession came eunuchs who carried commodes and chamber pots in case he wanted to take a piss or a shit. Um, <laughs> Thanks for letting us know. I think we worked that one out. <laughs> If I was walking, a sedan chair, open or covered according to the season, we brought bringing up the wet rear. This motley procession of several dozen people would proceed in perfect silence and order. Yeah, well, I don't know if I'd enjoy that. No, that sounds like the least chill walk yeah. ever. That sounds horrendous. I just want to, when I go for a walk, I just want to go on my own. Yeah, just a bit of alone time. Never God. had that. Maybe that's what he needs. Because he clearly was a psychopath. Maybe he needs some alone time. Yeah, just like think about what he did. <laughs> think about everything that you've ever done and will do and have thought about doing. <laughs> yeah? So every at every meal, Pooey was always presented with a huge buffet containing, containing every conceivable dish, the vast majority, of course, which he did not eat. Well, and then it just went to waste, probably. Yep. And how many people in China were... Starving? Oh, fucking Great. millions. Um, Love this guy. <laughs> every day he wore new clothing as Chinese emperors never reused their clothes. What? Wait. What? <laughs> every day, brand new clothing. Wow. Made of, and like, what happened to the old clothing? Gold just silk. Got, like, thrown away. Yeah. I'm guessing it got reused by someone, right? Some uh, cheeky person is like, yeah, I'll throw this away. And then they like... Sold on the black market. Yeah, so basically the the eunuchs stole like a lot of like stuff off him and sold it on the black market. And they, I think they did eat the leftovers. Just gorgeous Fair enough, leftovers. To be honest. But I mean, like they still chuck tons away because there's no way, like even like a palace full of eunuchs could uh, <laughs> to get through that. <laughs> even a palace <laughs> full of eunuchs. Uh, okay, so before we go on, I thought I'd explain a little bit about eunuchs because. It's kind of crazy. So, traditionally, eunuchs were those kind of, like, nobles who'd been, like, captured from rival or, like, defeated, like, noble families and spared death to, like, serve the emperor. Okay. So, unfortunately, to be trusted in this position, they had to be castrated so they couldn't produce any heirs, meaning they wouldn't, like, prove a threat to the emperor's reign. Mm -hmm. To prove... It's like... To further prove that they were eunuchs, they had to keep their severed penises and testicles in jars of brine around their neck when working around the palace. Wait, wait, what? <laughs> yeah, at all times, just just a memory, oh, my a memory God. of the of the the package they lost. I mean, if if it hadn't already been your birthday, that's what I would have bought you <laughs> as a gift. What my own? 
not a fake <laughs> one, not obviously. Not <laughs> like a real testicles and oh my gosh. <laughs> Would have somehow fashioned one out of like Play Doh or something. That's really weird and that sadistic. Grim, like so I'm in a kind of okay. I get the sentiment of being like, hey, yeah, but like someone's already had their balls and penis chopped I off. I know. Like why like, rub salt into the wounds? Yeah. Maybe like you could check in the morning, like have a yeah. quick peek down there. <laughs> just do a roll call, everyone just kinda of lifts up and they'll be like, Nothing, nothing, nothing. What, what's going on here? <laughs> <laughs> exactly. You don't have to Oh and that would it was just pure humiliation, isn't it? Yeah, that's exactly what it is. But the thing is like there weren't even any wars at this time, so like it's just a weird tradition, like like yeah, they they haven't like conquered like another like noble family. It's just these people have just like chosen to have their like testicles cut off to serve him. Was this like a good weird. job or was this a bad thing? I mean, like it doesn't sound very fun like working for him. No, but like I don't know, <laughs> was it did it bring honor to your family or something, or is it just Not was really. it just a punishment? I guess you kind of like lived in the palace, and they like, obviously you could like steal his clothes and. Eat the like leftover food. I don't. I really don't think I would give up my genitals for that. Though. No, I mean, like <laughs> it was like a way to like survive. It was like a way for you and your family to survive, like originally. Yeah. But by this point, like I don't really know why they're doing it. Like it, it just seems a bit weird. No, this is. <laughs> I mean, this is the nineteen nineteen ninety. Not not nineteen nineties. That would be weird. Nineteen hundreds. Yeah, like, exactly. Yeah. It's just. It's, oh. It's just mad. Anyway. So. Yeah. So with that uh, visualization, visualize, <laughs> with that visualization in mind, um, so yeah, essentially, like eunuchs were just slaves who did all the work in the Forbidden City, uh, such as cooking, gardening, cleaning, entertaining guests. The bureaucratic work needed to, go- and like yeah, all the bureaucratic work need- like, needed to govern a vast empire. So it made them like quite <clears throat> senior, kind of like civil servants, basically, but also mm. slaves, like with no, mm. with no genitals Uh, and (laughs) they also served as the emperor's advisors i mean like but i guess it didn't really work it didn't really matter at this point because he didn't have any power like like, yeah he was like it was like under regency yeah um did he have any kind of power at all even to like sign off on like laws and stuff i guess like, like our queen does like, yeah. she signs all the laws, but she would never, like, actually not sign one. Yeah, I think he'd, he'd be, like, rubber stamping, like, the uh, yeah the rules of, like, the great seals. But, um, yeah, he didn't, like... Here he had, like, no interest in ruling anyway. He was just... Yeah, it doesn't sound like he does. He's, he was too young. I mean, like, he was just a child. Um, but, yeah, his, his, like... I think his father was regent, but I think, yeah, it was, it was the, the... Like, the dowagers at this point that had all the power. So yeah, as I said before, like to to pay the the emperor back for a lifetime of misery and cruelty, that you and next frequently stole from the emperor's household and sold the takings on the uh, black market. So it got so bad that finally the eunuchs had to burn a room down to cover their crimes. What? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So after this, Pui decided to review the household, and most of the eunuchs were forced out of the Forbidden City to live a life of destitution on the streets of Beijing with their jar only. They're jarred cock and balls for comfort. I mean, I think you'd probably get rid of it, wouldn't you, at that point? Yeah. Yeah, I'm not going to keep that. But being like, you'd be really pissed, though, wouldn't you? Mm-hmm. You'd be like, look what I did. <laughs> Maybe you could sell it on the black market. Maybe. I mean, like... 
<gasps> you could sell it to like someone who's supposed to be going to be made a eunuch. Oh yeah, and then they can yeah, just... and then you could see Buy lucrative them. trade. Yeah, but you've only got like one of them. I don't know how that how long that that, that pay. That's true. Yeah, that pay packet have to last. be a high high price. <laughs> Um, da, da, da. so unsurprisingly the little shit Puyi was a vastly unpopular emperor um, so the people were already pretty mad at like, their Qing for having failed to modernise China when it needed to be modernised and kind of let it fall into semi-colonial decrepitness yet despite the woes of the wider kingdom the little emperor lived in abject luxury so yeah something had to give um mm-hmm. On the 7th of October 1911, the army garrison in Wuhan mutinied, sparking a widespread result in the Yangtze River Valley and beyond, demanding the overthrow of the Qing dynasty that had ruled China since 1644. Wow, that's a long time. Yeah, mad. So, to try and smooth things over, the Qing sent their strongman, General Yang Shikai, who was dispatched by the court to crush the revolution, but he was unable to, and so just switched sides. Oh, okay, fair <laughs> enough. So, the Qing and little Puyi were seen to have lost the mandate of heaven, and so realising all hopes of retaining power were lost, and hoping some favourable negotiated settlement, Emperor Zhaoja Longyu uh, endorsed the imperial edict of abdication of the Qing em- Emperor on the 12th of February, 1912, under a deal brokered by now Prime Minister Yun Shikai, with Sun Yat-sen's Republicans in the South. Um, so, uh, under the So that's the guy who, like, switched sides, right? Yeah, Yanshikai. And then Sun Yat-sen's, yeah. like, the uh, the great revolutionary, the father of one China. Who I will do an episode on one day, but I'm gonna... One day. He needs special attention, because he's a champion. Um, so, under the settlement, Puyi was uh, to retain his imperial title and be treated by the government of the Republic with uh, all the protocols attached to being a foreign monarch. Um, so while he would have no power, he would remain in the Fumin city and would receive a hefty annual subsidy of four million silver tails um, granted by the Republic to the Imperial household. So that's a shit ton of money. Is that a lot of money? Uh, it sounds like a lot because it has the word million, but yeah, for yeah. all I know, that could be nothing. So, But it sounds like a lot. Yeah, I think it was kind of like... It wasn't even just like the currency, it's just like it's just silver, so it's just ridiculous. Um, oh, okay, right, yeah. That is a lot. <laughs> so, um, Puyi wasn't actually told in February 1912 that his reign had ended and that China was now a republic. So he just continued to believe that he was still emperor for like a, at least a year after that. Yeah. So it wasn't until like 1913 when Empress Dowager Yu died that uh, Puyi was sort of the uh, situation. That was because Yon Shikai had now planned to restore the monarchy only with himself as emperor. So he kind of wanted Puyi to help facilitate just mainly as like a custodian of the palace until he uh, he could move in. So when Ch- Puyi found this out, he childi- childishly tried to sabotage these plans by hiding the royal seals, which were needed to make laws. Um, but he was told that Yon would just make some new ones, so it was a shit plan. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so he- that was a shit plan. <laughs> So he made himself emperor in 1915, but immediately had to abdicate in the face of massive public backlash. And then he just died soon after that. Oh. So fun. yeah. So now Puyi kind of like remains in the uh, in the palace for another couple of years. Um, so he's like a teenager now? Oh no, he's only 11 now. 
Okay. So still pretty young. Um, so when he was 11, uh, there was a brief attempt at restoring him to the throne when royalist general and warlord Jiang Shen uh, tried to return him to the throne. Albeit without Puyi's or like the royal household's consent. So at this time, President Li Yuanhong and Premier Duan Chi Chiri, I think is that, um, were kind of like disagreeing about whether or not to uh, join the Allied powers in World War One and declare war in Germany. So this led to political unrest in Beijing in the spring of 1917. Uh, so this was kind of like coupled with Japan's like demands over the Shandong Peninsula, and I think this was also the time when they kind of uh, thrust the da, 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 twenty-one demands. Is it? It's been a while since I read up on this. Da, 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 da. Yes, it is the twenty-one demands. Good memory. Well done. Um, so yeah, so it was kind of like a it was a time of turmoil. So Jiang used this confusion to launch his putsch, but it failed. Um, yeah, it was in by no means a popular cause. So much so that not even the royal court agreed to it. Basically, like the court had already prepared like a surrender document, but with Jiang's forces barricaded in the Fumin City, they couldn't like present it to the uh, to the Republic. But in the end, to prevent uh, prevent destruction of the Grand Palace and its grounds, the royalists surrendered before any fighting could begin, and Puyi was back off the throne. Wow! On off! On off! Yeah. Uh, So up until this point, Puyi had had like a standard Confucian education, being taught the various Confucian classics and nothing else. Um, It's weird because he doesn't seem very chill. (laughs) No, not at all. (laughs) But Confucian is not that chill. It's kind of like, it just teaches... I mean, there's some aspects of it that are kind of interesting, but a lot of it is just kind of like accepting hierarchy. So he was Mm. like, oh, cool, I'm at the top. I don't have to do anything. I no, but it also that. does teach that, like, you have to be a good monarch, otherwise people can, like, yeah. get rid of you. But I'm not sure. I think it might have changed. It depends on, like, which which kind of, like, um, interpretation of it is. Which anyway. Confucius. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so he later wrote, I learned nothing of mathematics, let alone science, and for a long time I had no idea where Beijing was situated on the map. What? <laughs> I had no idea. He's the emperor of China, <laughs> and he doesn't know where Beijing is. So this wouldn't change until the arrival of his Scottish tutor, Reginald Johnson. Hang on. Reginald Johnston. There you go. Uh, when he was 13. Um, so Reginald would prove to be the only other person able to control Puyi. In fact, he uh, he kind of like ended up revering him. Uh, under Johnson's orders, Puyi cut his pigtail and grew his hair into the crop style favoured in Europe. He also adopted Western dress and became something of a sycophant for the West in general, especially Britain. Uh, he also took an English first name at this time, to pu- demanding that everyone call him Emperor Henry Puyi. Henry. Henry. Lovely. Wow. Uh, I mean, like, yeah, he learned about all like the Henrys. The king, so it's just like, I want to mm. be like that. There are a lot of them. I want to be that yeah. one. Um, so, <clears throat> in on the 4th of June 1922, Puyi attempted to escape from the Forbidden City, having decided that he wanted to go and study at Oxford. 
He planned to issue an open letter to the people of China renouncing the title of emperor before leading from Oxford. However, the attempt failed when Johnson Johnston vetoed it and refused to call a taxi and Puyu was too frightened to live on the streets of Beijing on his own. So there you go. It wasn't a very good attempt to escape, no, to be fair. No, not really. He could have called his own taxi. Yeah, but he didn't know how because he, he didn't even know how to dress himself. Aww. Or even walk because people not had to carry him. Oxford, so. <laughs> so before this, it had been decided that Puyu was to, uh, to be married. Uh, his his uh, little group of uh, dowagers, his mothers that looked over him, had picked Wen Xiu, uh, a high-born woman from a noble Mongolian family. So it's so, so, some kind of thing that like his plan to escape to Oxford was his like plan to escape from marriage because he basically just didn't want to get married. Mm. Um, but we'll get into the, why that is a little bit later. Um so yeah, so they had their wedding on the 1st of uh, October 1922. The... So how old is he right now? So now, I think we've jumped a little bit, so now like he would be... Like 16 or something? Yes, so yeah, that's it. Yeah. So his wedding to Princess Wan... Well, she, had to say, she would take the name of Princess Wan wrong uh, in the marriage. Um, so it kind of like started with the betrothal presence of 18 sheep, two horses, and 14 pieces of satin, and 18 rolls of cloth being marched from the Forbidden City to Wan Rong's house in Beijing, accompanied by court musicians and cavalry. So it's like, it's so kind of like old, like, just like follows like all the older ancient traditions, like full on proper dowries of like livestock. So following Manchu traditions where weddings were conducted under moonlight for good luck, an enormous procession of palace guardsmen, eunuchs and musicians carried the princess Wan Rong in a red sedan chair called the Phoenix Chair from her house to the Forbidden City under a full moon. Wenwen was then taken to the uh, Palace of Earthly Peace within the Forbidden City, where Puyi sat upon the dragon throne and Wan Rong kowtowed to him six times to symbolise her submission to her husband. That's not very cool. No. Um, <laughs> following the wedding. So, yeah, that's it. They were married now. And now they had to consummate the wedding. So, following the wedding, Puyi was taken to the uh, bridal chamber, but soon fled, leaving his wives. All his wives. So he didn't just have one wife. So he married this one, but apparently he has had other wives as well. I don't know where that happened. Maybe it was just kind of like, like a group deal or something. Like he just like did the <laughs> like a buy one wedding. get one. Yeah, just throw in these other wives. Buy seven. Terrible. Free. So, wow. so he he's just... never consummated any marriage. This is like no. the first one that was going to yeah. consummate. Maybe and the he... other wives weren't like sexy wives. They were like show wives <laughs> or something. I don't know. It's possible. But even with this one, he just fled, leaving all his wives to sleep in the dragon bed by themselves. Just all in the dragon bed on their own. <laughs> They're probably um, fine with it, to be honest. Yeah, I mean, like, no one wants to, no one wants to be in this. <laughs> no one wants to be in this relationship. <laughs> <laughs> None um, of his wives want to be in this relationship. <laughs> so, although the relationship might have been physical, there seems to have been some kind of like some affection there in the beginning. In a kind of messed up way. So, Wan Rong's younger brother, Rong Chi, remembered how Pu Yi and Wan Rong, both, both, both teenagers at the time, loved to race around on their bicycles through the Forbidden City, forcing eunuchs to get out of the way. Um, he told, apparently told Bear in an interview, there was a lot of laughter. She and Pu Yi seemed to go on well. They were basically just like kids together. 
So, I mean, like, that's probably part of it as well. They were still just, like, kids. Like, plus they were, like, they were so sheltered from, like, real life. Like, they had actually just grown up as kids. Yeah. And they were just, like, suddenly, like, he's probably, like, suddenly stuck in this, like, bridal chamber to have what is essentially an orgy. <laughs> like, at that age and yeah he just pegged it he was like no <laughs> no i'm not done like i'm not ready uh so after the great canto earthquake on the 1st of september 1923 um which uh, destroyed the city of tokyo and yokohama Puyi donated jade antiques worth, um, at that time, £33,000 to help pay for disaster relief. This led a delegation of Japanese diplomats to the to visit the Fulin city to express their gratitude. In their report about the visit, diplomats noted that Puyi was highly vain and malleable and could be used by Japan. So this marked the beginning of Japanese interest in Puyi. Hmm. Uh-oh. Dun-dun! But first, they had to get hold of him. And uh, this was very... Uh... So yeah, so this next bit was very, very useful to them. On the 23rd of October 1924, a coup led by the warlord Fen Yuxiang uh, took the city of Beijing. And to please the crowds, Feng decided to abolish the unpopular Articles of Favourable Settlement, booting the erstwhile emperor out of the Forbidden City and abolishing all imperial titles and privileges. He was given three hours to leave the palace. And that's wow. it. Wow. So I mean, it's all that's over for harsh, him. but also... I know, but, but also I don't really enough. like him anyways. <laughs> so he spent a few days at the house of his father, Prince Chen, uh, but kind of like... Fe- like uh, fearing for his life, he decided to flee to the Japanese embassy uh, in Beijing. Okay. So apparently the state nor his father wanted him to, to do this. So this resulted in a, um, like a, basically like a car chase through like the city. And then like to lose the cops and like uh, his father's servants were chasing him. <clears throat> I did this weird like little switcheroo thing where like they went down the back alley and then he went into like a jewelry shop and then came out the back into like a little like horse drawn carriage and like took him on nice. like a proper like like yeah like a weird like little espionage thing. So uh, ba, 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 ba. Uh, so yeah, so he got to the Japanese embassy and they kind of like housed housed him there until the uh, until February nineteen twenty five when he was moved to the Japanese concession of Tianjin. Uh, first thing in the uh, in the Jiang Garden before moving to the Garden of Serenity in 1927. Oh, so the Garden this... of Serenity sounds nice. Yeah, I mean, like it sounds serene, pretty serene. It sounds pretty chilled out. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so at this time, China had broken down into warlordism. Uh, his court, prone to factionalism as it was, was constantly pushed him to back different warlords. So yeah, it's just broken down basically into like different areas of war- road by different warlords, and they all kind of like had a plan to unite China. And they all went to him looking for money. And different people in his court said, oh, yeah, back that one, back that one. So then he ended up backing different warlords against the other warlords he was also backing. Wow, sounds like a really complicated board game. Yeah. So this gave him a reputation of duplicity, which didn't help his relationship with any of them, but still drained his purse. Uh, so despite all the political manoeuvring going on around him, Puyi was frequently bored with his life and engaged in maniacal shopping to compensate for that. He later said he was addicted to buying pianos, 
pianos. Just on, tons what? of pianos. And I don't How know many why pianos he... did he have? And he puts this at the beginning of his list. Like, that surely should be at the end of his list. Like Maybe what? he, like, had one piano and kept on grading it. So it wasn't like he had, like, a collection <laughs> of pianos. Because that would be incredibly strange. I do think he had just a lot of pianos. Oh, my God. <laughs> did he even play the piano? Um, I'm not sure. I guess he must, <laughs> me must be able to play the piano. Cause that is just He's just collecting pianos. Piano. Like, his list is really weird. It just goes down, like, in, like, Valley. Pianos, watches, clocks radios western clothing leather shoes spectacles is the last on his list i mean like you would do that list in reverse wouldn't you does he wear like... spectacles he does yeah oh okay that's um, a bit i guess that's i mean i do have like different pairs of glasses yeah because obviously like, like... you change your jumpers every day so that's true but you probably don't have like thousands of them no i wish i did though but then that's also really like <laughs> It's not a good money sense because your prescription changes like every two years. Yeah. So. Yeah, these, are, these aren't things he's considering. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> also like 1920s optometry probably wasn't like <laughs> the best, was it? Yeah. Okay, so his wife, uh, for her part, eased her boredom by smoking opium, which Puyo encouraged as it fact. But as he found her more manageable when she was in an opium days. So this, this is, is like the 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 big wife, not the big, yeah, yeah. not like fat, but she's like the main wife. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And she's with him in the like, Serenity Garden. Yeah, like, okay. she, like yeah, it's not a good relationship. This. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, the Westernized Wan Rong loved to go out dancing. She liked to play tennis. She liked to wear Western clothes and makeup. Listen to jazz music and socialize with her friends. Which the more conservative courtiers all objected to, so she wasn't allowed to do any of that, which just sucks. She resented having to play the traditional role of a Chinese empress, but was unwilling to break the Puyi. So they kind of like argued a lot during this time, and Wang Rong repeatedly called Puyi a eunuch, possibly in reference to his inability to uh, perform. <laughs> perform. <laughs> Puyi now started to get a little um, impatient. He wanted to be the Emperor of China again. So in September 1931, he sent a letter to Jiro Minami, the Japanese Minister of War, expressing his desire to be restored to the throne. Um, Of course, what Puyi wanted was to be restored to the throne of the whole of China. However, this desire suited another of Japan's plans. So, around this time, some Maturian elites, uh, some nobles, <clears throat> and some generals had expressed a desire that Japan help, in inverted commas, liberate uh, Manchuria and create a Manchurian homeland separate from China. However, this was no, by no way like a popular request. The, like, the normal like common people were not like, pushing for this. And also there was like a pretty sizable hand population in Manchuria at the time so yeah it's it's it's, it's not a popular right revolution <clears throat> um and also even the elites i'm sure would not ultimately have been pushing for the strange experimental land that japan ultimately created uh which basically gave like those Manchurian elites very little power and only like ceremonial positions uh. at best so Following the Mukden incident uh, on the September uh, on the eighteenth of September nineteen thirty one and during the conquering of Manchuria, Puyi was uh, 
visited by Kenji Doihara, um, head of the espionage office of the Japanese Kwantang Army, uh, who proposed establishing Puyi as a head of Manchurian state. So Empress Wanrong was firmly against uh, this plan. Uh, she called it treasonous, and for a moment, Puyi hesitated. And so, Doihara sent for Puyi's cousin, the very pro-Japanese Yoshiko uh, Kawashima, uh, nicknamed the Eastern Jewel, uh, to change his mind. So, the Eastern Jewel was a strong-willed, flamboyant, openly bisexual woman noted for her habit of wearing male clothing and uniforms. She had much influence over Puyi. She also commanded like an army, like a Manchurian army, and is probably uh, next to uh, um, Suzuki, who I did in the earlier episode, and um, Fujiwara as a Japan's like most successful spy. And I'm going to do an episode on her because I have a book on her, but I've been like kind of holding off on that one as well. Um, so we'll go into her in a lot more detail in a future episode. Um, cool. But she's very, very cool. Um, if a bit controversial. <laughs> so um, so with her um, persuasion, he agreed. Um, in, uh, I apologize, this is quite a long one because his life is crazy. A little bit, yeah. <laughs> uh, so in November 1931, Puyi boarded the Japanese ship, the Awaji Maru, which took him across the East China Sea to Port Arthur. Ran Rong didn't initially go with him and took some convincing by Yoshiko, uh, but did eventually uh, follow her husband. In early 1932, General Itagaki informed Puyi that the new state would be a republic with him as chief executive. His form of address would be your Ex- excellency and not your imperial majesty. And there were to be no references to Puyi ruling with the mandate of heaven, all which totally pissed off Puyi. So, Manchukuo had to look like it was based on popular sovereignty, um, and that basically, like, the 34 million people of Manchuria actually wanted Puyi to rule over them. Yeah. So, this was completely, like, contrary to Puyi's ideas about his right to rule uh, by, like, the mandate of heaven. Itagaki suggested to Puyi that in a few years, Manchukuo might become a monarchy, and that Manchuria was just beginning, and as Japan had ambitious plans to like, take all of China um, Puyi would eventually become the Great Qing Emperor again and this was enough to placate him so yeah it's all kind of weird though because they're kind of all practicing like uh, like promising him this but it was like the Japanese like, Pan-Asianists that got him removed from his throne in the first place like they gave loads of money to San Yosin and like helped fund like countless like failed revolutions against like the Qing, and then the successful one. So like <clears throat> the army's kind of like use of him is really peculiar, and it just shows how just like batshit crazy like the imperial like Japanese government was. Like <laughs> there was like no, there was no plan. Just loads of people just wanting to do their own thing and just yeah. like taking advantage of the situation. But yeah, Itagaki is a bit of a knob anyway. Um, so like so Puyi finally got kind of like his wish partly on the 1st of March uh, 1934 when he was finally crowned actual emperor of Manchukuo he was given uh, the reign title of the uh, Kangda 
uh, emperor. However, this title was bestowed on him by Hirohito, showing that he would always be subordinate to the ja- his Japanese counterpart. This is something that Hirohito himself never understood, believing this would be counterproductive to the formation of a stable Manchukuo. However, even though like a lot of people say that he had like ultimate power, he didn't. Like he, even though he kind of had it like in theory, like he did actually essentially reign as a constitutional monarch, which means he didn't really have the means. Was only not the inclination to like refuse, yeah. refuse, refuse what he was being told to do. Yeah, the Japanese chose the capital of Manchukuo uh, as the industrial city of Changchun, which was renamed Seeing uh, King. Puyi had wanted the capital to be in Mukden, uh, which had been the original Qing capital before the Qing conquered China in 1644, but he was overruled by the Japanese. So yeah, that was just like one of many uh, disagreements he would have with the, with the Japanese. He would remain constantly at odds with them uh, throughout his reign, although he would appear almost submissive in public. So there was no palace in Changchun, which meant that Puyi had to move into once to what had once been the office uh, of the Salt Tax Administration. So I mean, like, yeah, he just lived in a big office building. <laughs> Which Does it sort of really the same as yeah having yeah. a big palace from like the forbidden city to just an office block in Changchun? Um, so now it's a museum, the Museum of the Imperial Palace of the Manchu State, which uh, which people can visit. I'm <laughs> going there actually; that'd be pretty cool. Um, the palace was heavily guarded at all times by Japanese troops, and Puyi said he was not allowed to leave without permission. His only job was to rubber stamp the laws that were presented to him, which he did obediently. So in 1935, Puyi visited Japan, sailing from Dalian to Yokohama on the warship Hayai. He was greeted by the Shower Emperor at the Tokyo Railroad Station, where a moment of unintentional comedy occurred when Puyi attempted to take off a glove that was too tight before shaking the Emperor's hand. So he basically just struggled to take this, like, glove off for like ages while everyone was like stifling laughs because basically he was just incapable of doing anything himself oh. like the eunuchs take off his gloves he doesn't know how to take off a glove it's <laughs> is such a complicated thing to know <laughs> how to do so P.E. became extremely unhappy with his life as a virtual prisoner in the salt tax palace and his moods became even more erratic than normal so he'd either spend hours just passively staring into space doing nothing or just indulging in his old sadism by having his servers beaten in front of him he became a devoted buddhist and a vegetarian having statues of buddha putting up all over the salt tax palace for him to pray to as such he banned the staff from eating meat yay it also led him <laughs> to ban his staff from killing insects or mice. But if he found any insects or mice droppings in his food, the cooks were flogged. So yeah, he was a pretty shit Buddhist, really. Yeah, that is not not good Buddhism. So Puyi himself never had any children. The very miserable Ranrong engaged in a what I think is a very fair affair with uh, Puyi's chauffeur, Li Tiyu, which uh, unfortunately left her pregnant. Uh-oh. So we don't really know what happened to the child, but so Bear kind of like suggests that it was like killed in front of her by like, like right in front of her by like Japanese doctors as soon as it was born. Um, but yeah, this 
probably be like taken with a grain of salt. I think that's what happens in the film. So like some have suggested that Puyi himself had the child killed, while others say the child was simply sent away. But we don't really know what happened to the child. Let's hope the child was sent away. Yeah, I really hope that was the case. But um, yeah, it doesn't but, sound. I mean, yeah. He doesn't have a good track record. Let's just put no. that there. Um. So afterwards, Wan Rong was like understandably totally broken by what she'd seen. What like, what, what happened? Um. And she kind of like lost her will to live. Uh, spending as much time as possible in an opium haze to numb the pain. Yeah, she had a really shit life. Like, I'm really, really sorry for her. Yeah, does she kill herself or just, mm. just kind of like while away her days on opium? Yeah, basically, like she does survive. Um, and then yeah, and then she just kind of like disappears. But we'll, yeah, we'll, we'll get to that in a bit. Um, so yeah, so much, for much of World War Two, Pu was confined to the Salt Salt Tax Palace and believed that Japan was winning the war. So it wasn't until 1944 that Pu finally got his first like inklings that. Maybe the Japanese were losing. Um, so, like the Japanese press began to report heroic sacrifices in Burma and Pacific Islands, while air raid shelters were started to be built uh, in and around uh, the uh, palace. This was kind of like further confirmed when he was asked to give a speech before a group of Japanese infantrymen who had volunteered to be human bullets, promising to strap explosives to their bodies and staged suicide attacks in order to die for the Shao Emperor. Pu Yi commented, as he read out his speech praising the glories of dying for the Emperor, only then did I see the ashen grey of their faces and tears flowing down their cheeks and hear their sobbing. Pu Yi commented that he felt at that moment utterly terrified at the death cult's fanaticism of Bushido, which reduced the value of human life down to nothing, as to die for the Emperor was the only thing that mattered. He observed that the Japanese infantrymen all had families and friends who cared for them and quite possibly had been bullied by their officers into becoming human bullets. So after this, Yoshiko tried to reassure Puyi by saying the, the human bullets were crying manly Japanese tears as deep down they wanted to die for the emperor. But Puyi later stated that he was not convinced by this argument. Yeah, <laughs> oh, really. yeah, like, <laughs> uh, sorry, I'm not convinced. Mm-hmm. But... But, this, but at least it's kind of like starting to show empathy now. I mean, like, it's taken him a while, but it seems to be there somewhere. Oh. But then again, this is just him telling that story, so fuck yeah. that, it really happened. Who knows? <laughs> um, so, on the 9th of August, 1945, the Kwantung Army's commander, General Otozo Yamada, arrived at the Salt Tax Palace to tell Puyi that the Soviet Union had declared war on Japan and the Red Army had entered Manchukuo. Yamada was assuring Puyi that the Kwantung Army could easily defeat the Red Army, when the air raid sirens suddenly sounded, and the Red Air Force began a bombing raid, forcing all to hide in the basement. It was obvious to him that this wasn't the case. So while Pu Yi prayed to the Buddha, Yamada fell silent as the bombs fell, destroying a Japanese barracks situated next to the Salt Tax Palace. The next day, Yamada told Pu Yi that the Soviets had already broken through the defensive lines in northern Manchukuo, but the Kwantung Army would hold the line in southern Manchukuo, and that Pu Yi must leave at once to get out of the way of the fighting. The staff of the Salt Tax Palace was thrown into panic as Puyi ordered all the treasures to be boxed up and shipped out. In the meantime, Puyi observed from his window that soldiers of the Manchukuo Imperial Army were taking off their AR uniforms and deserting. Puyi says he put on his uniform of Commander-in-Chief of the Manchukuo Army and announced, We must support the holy war of our parental country with all our strength and must resist the Soviet armies to the end. And to the very end, 
to test the reaction of the Japanese. With that, apparently, uh, Yoshiko fled the room and Yamada went up with her. Sure, sure he put on his uniform. I know. It's never four Which... day in his life. <laughs> he can't even take a glove off properly. Which Puyi says showed him the war was lost. Yeah, that's just bullshit, but... <laughs> he loves his little stories, doesn't he? So late on the night of... Uh, the 11th of August, 1945, a train carrying Puyi, his courts, his ministers, and the Qing treasures left Changchun. The train was frequently diverted as a result of Soviet bombing. As the Soviets had bombed all the train stations and Puyi's train was running low on coal, the train retreat, just re- basically just returned back to Changchun where it started. Once there, Puyi planned to take a plane to escape. On the 16th of August, Puyi took a small plane to Mukden where another larger plane was supposed to take him, uh, take him to onto like uh, to Tokyo, but instead a Soviet plane landed. Puyi and his party were were all probably taken prisoner by the Red Army, but they had no idea who he was. So basically, his like his plane contained just like all the senior like male ministers of his kind of like yeah. um, of his uh, and Wan Rong was left in Changchun, along with like the rest of like the female retinue to just like do whatever wow what happened to her i'm not really sure i, I hopefully she thought she's i don't think she really pops up again like in the well, she's just in like some sort of opium haze yeah so that kind of sucks so now he's taken prisoner by the soviets so the soviets took to a siberian town called cheetah where he lived in a sanatorium then he was made they moved on to a place called Kab Kabar Kab hang on. Kabar Kabarovsk Rovsk Kabar Why can't I pronounce words properly? Kabarovsk. Yeah, Kabarovsk. Yeah, it's really hard. Kabarovsk, there you go. Near the Chinese border, where he was apparently treated well and allowed to keep some of his servants. He continued to have them flogged. So he had In- okay. He had people that could flog. Yeah, he yeah. had he had enough servants that he had servants to flog his servants. God, that kind of sucks. Even as a prisoner of the Soviets, he's still engaged in all of that, all that stuff. So he kind of soon he heard that the Kuomintang had captured his cousin, Yoshiko, the Eastern Jewel, and publicly executed her in uh, Beijing in 1948. Spoiler for a future episode. Of, <laughs> of high treason. So. Hearing this, he didn't wish to return to China, and he wrote to Joseph Stalin several times asking for asylum in the Soviet Union, and I don't know why he thought this would be granted, that he'd be given one of the former Tsarist palaces to live out his, like, to live in, like, for the rest of his life. They, like, killed Stalin their, like, ain't king. gonna be doing that, I'm yeah. sorry. They just executed their Tsar, and they were like, yeah, we'll just get another king in. You, you can take the palace, like, yeah, but I mean, like, he didn't really get it, did he? It's, no. The life he'd live. Didn't get anything. <clears throat> when the Chinese Communist Party under Mao Zedong came to power in 1949, Puyi was repatriated to China after negotiations between the two countries. So this is where things get interesting. Well, this Mao... is where things get interesting. <laughs> More interesting. Different interesting. So Mao had no desire to kill Puyi, but rather decided that if he could be rehabilitated, remoulded, this could be the greatest victory for the communist cause ever. The great imperial emperor made a common comrade, and so Puyi went through re-education. So, okay. <laughs> by this point, 
Pruyi had never once in his life brushed his own teeth or tied his own shoelaces. Wow, he hadn't brushed his own teeth. No. And now is the first time. Have you ever tried brushing somebody else's teeth? No. I've actually Thank- tried it. Thankfully. I was like, Matt was like, oh, I'm so tired. You brush my teeth for me. So I was like, yeah, <laughs> I'll try it. And it's the weirdest experience. Yeah, I can imagine that. Ever. Don't let and somebody like, else brush your teeth. really ineffective. Like, <laughs> it doesn't work. Get, really getting in there. Like, that's going to be <laughs> difficult. Unless, of course, you're a dentist, then you can brush yeah. somebody else's teeth. Yeah, but he was trained for that. Maybe that's, they were just trained. He had his own. Not, not a dentist. Like, they couldn't perform any other tasks, but they could brush like a dentist. <laughs> you'd be so your teeth would be so nice every single day so now he was finally forced to perform these simple tasks that had always been done for him which he found very difficult the prisoners often laughed at how he struggled with the most simple of tasks so this is the first time that he's been laughed at this is not something he's used to yeah it's his face so much of Pooey's remodelling consisted of attending Marxist-Leninist-Maoist discussion groups where the prisoners would discuss their lives before being imprisoned. As part of the remoulding, Puyi was confronted with ordinary people who had suffered under the empire of Manchukuo, including those who had fought for the communist cause, both to prove to him that resistance to the Japanese had been possible, so, like, his his defence that, like, he only did it to survive were, like, bollocks. And to show him <laughs> what a shit show he had presided over. So... Puyi started to express guilt in writing. Sometimes he was taken out for tours of the countryside of Manchuria. Uh, on one trip, he met a farmer's wife whose family had experienced terrible hardship in Manchukuo. When Puyi begged for forgiveness, she told him, it's all over now, let's not talk about it, causing him to break down in tears. On another occasion, uh, he was uh, confronted with a former concubine um, where she attacked him for seeing her only as a sex object. So obviously he did have a bit of sex then. Anyway. Um, <laughs> she, uh, she said that she was now pregnant by a man who loved her and that her, her life was a lot better. Um, so kind of like these are like the examples of like what happened, but like obviously these are probably quite idealised impressions of re-education because I think they came from his book, which he wrote later, like under the communist government. However, after rehabilitation ended, he moved to Beijing on the 9th of December 1959 with special permission from Mao Zedong and lived for the next six months in an ordinary uh, Beijing residence with his sister before being uh, transferred to a government-sponsored hotel. First, he had the job of uh, sweeping the streets. He got lost on his first day of work, which led to led to him uh, telling uh, astonished passers-by that I am Puyi, the last emperor of the Qing dynasty. I'm staying with relatives and I can't find my way home. One of his first acts upon returning to Beijing was to visit the Forbidden City as a tourist, where he pointed out to other tourists that many of the exhibits were things that he used to use in his youth. <laughs> he voiced support for the communists and uh, worked as a Beige- uh, worked in, uh, at the Beijing Botos- uh, at the Beijing Botanical Gardens uh, as a simple gardener, which gave him apparently a degree of happiness he'd never known as an emperor. Although he was still notably clumsy, as he hadn't done anything for himself growing up. At the age of 56, he married uh, Li Xuxian, a hospital nurse, um, on the 30th of April 1962 in a ceremony held at the banquet hall of the 
consultative conference. From 1964 until his death, he worked as an editor for the literary department of the Chinese People's Political Consultative Conference. All of these bureaus have such long names. <laughs> where his monthly salary was around 100 yuan. One yuan in the 1960s was equivalent to about 40 cents uh, in uh, US dollars. Wow. During this period, Pu Yu was known for his kindness. And once, after he accidentally knocked down an elderly lady with his bicycle... He visited her every day in hospital to bring her flowers and make amends until she was released. He became a target of the Red Guard during the Cultural Revolution, but survived through protection by the state. However, by this time his health had begun to fail, and he died in Beijing of complications arising from kidney cancer and heart disease on the 17th of October 1967, at the age of 61. Wow, that's a crazy end to that story. I know. I think that's the craziest bit of that story. Is the end. I know. It's just like well, a gardener. That's essentially why I did it. And marries like, a woman. Like when I like kind of like I watched a really good doc- documentary about him and like and that's how it ended. I was just like I was thinking I was like kind of like potting around doing like other stuff while it was on and it got to this bit and I was like, What? The <laughs> what? hell? That is mad. <laughs> like I kinda knew who he was at first, but I never knew he ended his days as like a gardener in like Beijing. But like from the person he was, like like the way he acted, like I so guess mouse picture, like re-education kind of worked. Yeah, definitely. I mean, like, it was, <laughs> Which is I like mean, not like, something I would say ever. <laughs> yeah, like for me, like for all the like kind of ills of like communism, like that. Yeah, that was good for him. <laughs> but there's this picture basically uh, of him just kind of like hugging like these like the two people that um, I think helped like re-educate him, and he's just like he's all just kind of like really chummy and like happy, just like which I mean like it's just like a normal picture, but like. It's just not a picture you'd associate with the guy at the beginning of the story. Yeah, and definitely. Like a... I don't know if it's growth, but it's definitely like change. Yeah, but he just looks weirdly contented, like to just be like a simple guy. Weird. So yeah, that's, that's what most that's... people want. I think. I know. Yeah, simple I, guy. Yeah, I, I think that as well. Um, but yeah, that is Pooh Yee. This has been awesome and crazy ride, <laughs> um, but it's also been incredibly long. So we should probably wrap up. Yeah. So before we go, what are you making for dinner? Uh, I don't know. Actually, you haven't chosen yet. It's eight o'clock. Oh man, it's yeah. Because we did it in a panic. I have no idea what we're having. <laughs> <laughs> Rice and something. Yeah. Um, yeah. <laughs> we are having veggie burgers with halloumi and pepper and salad. Yummy. And, yeah, some sort of taste. We are very much enjoying our rice cooker. Thank you for recommending. I give you a no bow. worries. Um, <laughs> Yeah, it's cute as well. It's got wheels. It's got little wheels. Really? Oh, my brother's one didn't have that. That's a new addition. Mm. Oh, man. Um, nice. Yeah, so thank you very much, everyone, for listening. And please subscribe wherever you are listening to this podcast. And follow us on Twitter and Instagram at HowYouEverPod. And thank you very much for talking to us on Twitter. There's been people messaging us about our episodes and you know retweeting them and stuff so thank you very much for that and we will see you next time bye